Well, as always, it is a joy and privilege to be able to proclaim God's Word to you this morning. If you have a copy of God's Word with you, would you open up to Matthew chapter 1? Matthew chapter 1. We're beginning our series today, or we're continuing our series that we began last week on the Gospel according to Matthew. Last week we began with an overview of the book, and we saw that the book is primarily about who Jesus is, but it's also very much about our response to who Jesus is. Remember that question that Jesus asks in chapter 16, verse 15, when he says, who do you say that I am? And that's a question that comes to every one of us. And we said last week that the whole gospel of Matthew answers that question. It's right to say that Jesus is the son of the living God, as Peter does in that chapter. It's right to say, like the early church council of Chalcedon, that Jesus is at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man. But the Gospel of Matthew doesn't just give us a one-sentence answer to that question. Matthew tells us and shows us who Jesus is in stories and teachings and actions over the course of the entire book. And so we aren't done with the question. We're going to come back to it again and again. Who is this Jesus, and how will you respond to him? This morning, we're going to look at the first way that Matthew answers that question. Matthew, writing the very Word of God on the first page of the New Testament, beginning the most important story in the history of the world, gives us a list of names. He writes a genealogy. I don't know how many of you had a speech or a communication class in high school or college, but one of the things that they say to you in that class is that you only have a certain amount of time where you hold the audience's interest when you begin speaking. And so you better give something that is attention-grabbing and exciting at the very beginning so that they don't lose interest. Matthew obviously never took that class. But to defend Matthew and to defend the Holy Spirit, this, this morning I want us to see that this genealogy is exactly where the gospel of Jesus should start. This isn't an oversight on God's part or a kind of throat clearing that Matthew does before the real story begins. It is the perfect beginning to the story of the Savior of the world, the greatest story ever told. But before we go there and look at what Matthew says, let's go to our God and ask for his help as we read his word. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know and love your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may hear your word and believe it. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, 
and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amenadab, and Amenadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mothan, and Mothan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. This is the word of the Lord. There are a lot of things that we could see in this genealogy. This morning, I want us to see three things that God is teaching us in these verses. The first thing that we're going to see is that Jesus fulfills the promises of God from the Old Testament. Then we're going to see that Jesus reveals that God is a God of faithfulness, even in the midst of darkness. And then finally, we're going to see that Jesus reveals that God is a God of surprising grace. So that's where we're going this morning. First, God shows us that Jesus fulfills the promises from the Old Testament. In other words, the story of redemption does not begin with a manger scene in Bethlehem. Have you ever walked into a movie a little bit late, or worse, seen the fourth or fifth movie in a series without seeing all the ones that came before? I've done that. I was working as a youth intern in Oklahoma, and all the students were excited about the seventh Harry Potter movie that was coming out. I hadn't seen or read any of them, but I went anyway. What do you think happened to me when I was watching that movie? I was completely lost. I didn't know any of the characters. I didn't know any of their relationships. I had no idea why they were searching for this guy named Voldemort. I was lost. I tried to enter into a story without knowing what came before. And what Matthew is telling us in this genealogy is that Jesus doesn't explode onto an empty stage. Instead, the stage has been set with thousands of years of God's working in the lives of his people. As we sit here and listen to these names being listed off, they sound strange and foreign and honestly kind of boring to us. But if you grew up as an Israelite in Matthew's day and you heard these names, you would have known every one of them. 
We could walk through the Old Testament showing all the ways that God has set the stage with these people for Jesus' coming, but that's not what Matthew does. Matthew doesn't walk through the entire Old Testament. Instead, he focuses us. He focuses from the very first sentence on these three titles for Jesus. Verse 1 says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And each one of those titles is packed with significance. We'll look first at the title, The Son of Abraham. Many of you remember the story of Abraham. He shows up at the end of Genesis 11. The first 11 chapters of Genesis tell about God's good creation and the fall of humanity into sin. And then as they are exiled from the garden, humanity spirals further and further into sin and into their own destruction. And then God comes to Abraham. We find out later that Abraham is just a pagan man worshiping other gods, and the Lord comes to him, and he makes a promise to him. This is what God says to Abraham in Genesis 12, beginning in verse 1. He says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Do you see what's happened? God has focused in. He has chosen one man from among the earth. He's chosen one family, and he says, In you, or through you, I'm going to bless all the families of the earth. God makes a promise, a covenant to Abraham, that he will bless him with land and a name and a great family that will become a great nation. But the blessing is not meant to end with him or with his family. It's meant to go to all the peoples of the earth. And later in the story, God makes clear that it will be a single offspring of Abraham who will bring about this blessing, a son. Jesus is that son of Abraham. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham to bless all the nations, all the peoples of the earth through him. And we're going to see that unfold throughout Matthew's gospel. But Jesus isn't just called the son of Abraham, he's also called the son of David. Down in verse 6, we see Matthew refer to David as the king, which is a bit odd in a list filled with kings. But David is the king. The title represents another promise of God that he made to David in the Old Testament. Remember that Abraham's family grows and grows and grows, and then they go from the promised land into Egypt. And they're in slavery in Egypt for 400 years, but then God brings them out of Egypt. He rescues them from slavery, and he brings them into the promised land. But when they come into the promised land, things do not go so well. The people are directionless and leaderless. The book of Judges, which is chaotic and tragic, ends with this sentence. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this is a call for a king. A leader who will lead God's people not just in victory 
or prosperity, but in worship of God, to rule them and lead them in the ways of God. After one failed attempt with Saul, we get David becoming the king. He is a man after God's own heart. But in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with David, a promise to give him an offspring, a son who will come after him. And listen to what God says to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David is not the king that Israel needs. God promises that he will send another, a son of David, who won't rule for a while and then die, but who will establish a kingdom that will last forever. Jesus is that son of David. He is the king. Matthew will show us again and again how Jesus is the king bringing his kingdom into the world. And just like Israel, contrary to what we might think, we need a king who will rule us and lead us in right paths. Jesus is that king, and the good news is that he will reign over us forever. But Jesus isn't just the son of Abraham, and he's not just the son of David. Matthew also calls him Jesus Christ. You've probably heard this at some point, but it's always good to remember that Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's not Jesus Christ, the son of Joseph Christ and Mary Christ. No, Jesus Christ is a title. Christ is a Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. So when you read verse 1, you should read it like this. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And this term Messiah or Christ is also packed with promise from the Old Testament, especially during the time of exile and afterward, as Israel is still under foreign rule. Whenever Israel had been in trouble in the past, God had sent someone. Think especially of the judges again. Israel sins and gets themselves into a dilemma, and God anoints someone with his spirit who comes to rescue them from their enemies. This, at bare bones, is the idea of the Messiah in the Old Testament. So, throughout the time after Israel's exile, they were waiting on this person, this anointed one from God, to save them from their enemies. Matthew and all the New Testament authors tell us that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He's the Christ that they've been waiting for to rescue them from their enemies and from their troubles. So this is how Matthew sets up the story of Jesus. He begins with these three huge titles packed with significance and promise. And he says that Jesus fulfills all of these promises. In the midst of sin and misery, he will bring blessing to the nations. In the midst of chaos and anarchy, he will become the king of an eternal kingdom. And in the midst of distress and the oppression of God's people, Jesus is the anointed one to save them. And one of the reasons why it's very important for us to be reminded that Matthew begins here, 
is so that we can remember that Jesus isn't our fairy godmother or our genie or the Easter bunny. He's not someone who grants every wish that we come up with. God has established it, has established offices and categories over the course of thousands of years, and Jesus comes and fulfills those categories. In order to understand who Jesus is and what he has done, we need to understand the grand story that God is telling in the Bible. We mentioned last week that the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20 that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Notice he doesn't say all your made-up hopes and dreams find their yes in Jesus. No, it's all the promises of God. We don't create Jesus in whatever image we want. We listen to who God has told us he is, which, by the way, is so much better than all of our made-up hopes and dreams. So that's the first thing that Matthew teaches us. Jesus comes to fulfill the promises of God from the Old Testament. The second thing we see from this genealogy is that Jesus reveals that God is a God of faithfulness, even in the midst of darkness. Again, while these names may be confusing or foreign to us, they certainly wouldn't have been to Matthew's original readers. They knew these names and these people and their stories. And what looks like a small list is actually a compressed version of the entire history of the Old Testament. And when you zoom in on each individual story, you realize that God's promises took a long time to come to fulfillment. We see right off the bat in verse 2. Look with me at verse 2. It says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. That's simple enough, right? But do you remember the story of Abraham and Isaac? Abraham is 75 years old when God comes to him, and he has a 65-year-old barren wife. At that point, God promises that he will give him a son. Abraham believed God's promise, but it was followed by years and years of waiting on God to fulfill it. Isaac was finally born 25 years after that first promise. What looks like one simple line to us is a story of God's faithfulness to his promises, but fulfilling them in his timing. Verses 3 and 4 only include a few names, But those names include the time that Israel was in slavery in Egypt for 400 years. Even though the promise was made to Abraham that God would give him the land of Canaan, it was seven or 800 years after the promise before his people finally were established in the land of Canaan. Verses 7 through 11 summarize the horrible time of the kings after David and Solomon, who were almost all wicked and ungodly, and who brought horrible circumstances to God's people. God promised them an eternal king like David, but for about 400 years they watched each and every king fail to fulfill that promise. This long period of waiting is the clearest in the way that Matthew describes the exile. At the end of verse 11 and the beginning of verse 12, he talks about the deportation to Babylon. Remember, after that long string of horrible kings, God finally tells his people that he's sending judgment upon them. The southern kingdom of Judah is conquered by Babylon in 586 B.C., and so they are ripped out of the promised land. Their temple 
is destroyed. Their king has no power. And instead of bearing the blessing of God, they bear his curse. In other words, all of God's promises to them have been reversed. Their time of exile in Babylon is about 70 years, but it's another 500 years before Jesus shows up on the scene saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Imagine with me for a minute, what would it have been like to be a faithful Israelite 200 years into slavery in Egypt? Or 50 years into the exile in Babylon? What would you have been tempted to believe about God and his faithfulness to his promises? You would have thought that he'd forgotten about his people, that he had abandoned them or tweaked his promises. But in this genealogy, we get the benefit of looking back. We know that God fulfilled those promises in his time. And what Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9 is true of all God's promises. Peter says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness. We are tempted to think that God has forgotten his promises to us or that he's unfaithful to us or that maybe he doesn't care about us. But God is perfectly faithful to every one of the promises he has made to us. He will never leave you or forsake you. You may not see all of his workings, but he promises that he is working every event in your life, every season of waiting, every season of suffering for your good and for his glory. It's easy for us to sit on the other side of this story and see the fulfillment of those promises. But we need to remember that God's people clung to those promises in the midst of waiting, in the midst of despair and darkness. They saw the faithfulness of God in the past, and so they trusted the faithfulness of God in the future. The third and final thing we see in this genealogy is that Jesus reveals that God is a God of surprising grace. The stories that are represented in this list of names weren't just stories of waiting. Many of them were embarrassing stories for Israel. You know that famous question that that Nathanael asks in John chapter 1, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And we might ask, can anything good come out of this family? There are a lot of people in this family who aren't the kind of people that an Israelite king would want in his family lineage. There are also plenty of stories of people in here that are stories of sin and failure and unfaithfulness. These would have been embarrassing stories for God's people. But God shows his grace and his wisdom and even the creativity of his providence by using all of these people in spite of their sinfulness to bring about the fulfillment of his promises. First, we see some pretty surprising people in this family tree. Remember, this was the family tree of the Messiah promised to Israel, the one who would finally bring victory for God's people over their enemies. He would establish Jerusalem as the center of the world, as the wise men say, In Matthew chapter 2, Jesus was going to be the king of the Jews. 
But for the ultimate Israelite and the king of the Jews, Jesus sure had a lot of Gentiles in his family tree. We see this especially in verse 5. Look there with me. Verse 5 says, And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. Now, in a standard genealogy for that time, only the fathers would have been mentioned. But Matthew mentions two mothers here, Rahab and Ruth. Why does he break with that convention? Rahab shows up in Joshua chapter 2. When God's people are finally coming into the land to conquer the Canaanites, spies go into the city of Jericho to see how they might conquer it. And they meet Rahab there, who is a Canaanite prostitute. She hides the spies from the men of Jericho and confesses that the Lord is God of heaven and earth. And then she asks that she and her family be spared when they inevitably will defeat the city. She is spared. And because of her faith, this Gentile prostitute is made a part of Jesus' family line. Ruth is also a Gentile. She's a Moabite who gets an entire book of the Bible dedicated to her and ends up being the grandmother of King David. Tamar, in verse 3, was also a Gentile. And in verse 6, Bathsheba was married to Uriah, who was a Hittite, also a Gentile. Now, it might not seem like a big deal for us that there are a bunch of Gentiles in the family tree of the king of the Jews, but it would have been a big deal to the Israelites. The Gentiles were their enemies. They were the people who worshipped other gods and persecuted God's people. The promises were for Israel, not for anyone else. But Matthew is peppering something in here that's going to be a shocking theme throughout this book and throughout the rest of the Bible. It's that the gospel is not just for the Jews, but for the Gentiles too. Christianity would not just be another ethnic religion, but a worldwide religion. Abraham's family was chosen to be a blessing to the entire world. Jesus tells his disciples to make disciples of all nations, not just Israel. And so the genealogy shows the beginning of God's surprising fulfillment of his promise. But this isn't just a family tree that's embarrassing because it includes some Gentiles. It's also embarrassing because it includes some pretty horrible stories about Jesus' family. One particularly embarrassing story is found in verse 3. It says, And Judah, who was one of Jacob's sons, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. You might not be familiar with this story. It's found in Genesis 38. The summary is that Judah had a son who married a woman named Tamar, but the son died before he gave Tamar any children. Judah was supposed to provide her with another husband, and he didn't. So Tamar disguised herself as a prostitute in a place she knew Judah was going. And that is how Judah fathered Perez and Tamar and Zerah by Tamar. This is the man who the Messiah was supposed to come from his line. Another embarrassing story for the Israelites that many of you do know is found in verse 6. It says, And Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. David is the king of Israel that all other kings of Israel are measured against, 
a man after God's own heart who defeated God's enemies and gave the people rest. But this one line reminds us that King David is not exempt from the stories of sin and failure. The wife of Uriah was Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel 11, we read that David committed adultery with Bathsheba and had her husband Uriah killed to cover it up. This is the man who God promised he would have a son to sit on the throne of an eternal kingdom. What a mess. What a mess of sin and failure and sorrow. What a tangled web of God's faithfulness and human sin. This genealogy of Jesus isn't just a list of names. It's a tightly packed summary of the history of God's people. A long history of the wrong kinds of people and of sin and of failure. But it ought to bring us great comfort that this is the family that Jesus came from. Jesus, the perfect, spotless Son of God, his family was riddled with sin and failure and dysfunction. That ought to bring us comfort because the family that Jesus came for, the family he came to create, the church, this family is also riddled with sin and failure and dysfunction. But praise God that he is not hindered by our weaknesses, just like he was not hindered by the weaknesses of his people in the Old Testament. As we look back on the sin and failures of God's people, we are able to see the beautiful result that God brings about in Jesus Christ coming into the world. We see how God was always working for his purposes and for their good. But as we look at our current situation, where none of us lives like we wish we would, we can't see the end result yet. But Jesus tells us where this is going. He tells us how things are going to end, where God is faithfully directing us. Ephesians 5 says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. As the Apostle Paul says when he sums up the whole story of the gospel, but where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. Brothers and sisters, the grace of Jesus is enough to forgive and overcome all your sin and all your failures. This is why he came into the world, not to find perfect people, but to find sinful people and make them his sons and daughters, to make them into his beautiful bride, holy and without blemish. After all the promises of God and the long seasons of waiting and the failure and sin of his people, Jesus has come into the world. He is the long-awaited Messiah, the King, the blessing of the nations. What he requires of us is that we come to him. That we come to him who is the long-awaited king. That we come to him with our sin to find forgiveness. That we come to him with our burdens to find rest. This long-awaited king has come to us so that we might come to him. Would you come to him? Please pray with me. Father, we are humbled 
that we stand looking back over all your workings in history, knowing that you are always working for our good and for your glory. We are so undeserving. And so, Lord, we pray that we would see our lack of deserving, that we would see our sin, that we would see our need of Christ, and that we would come to him. That we would come and see in him the fulfillment of all of your promises. Do this in us both now and forever. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.